welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast looking at how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. I'm Christina Patterson. I'm a writer, broadcaster and coach. And today I'm really delighted to welcome Anne Alexander, senior political producer for ITV's flagship programme, Good Morning Britain. Anne has been a political reporter for the BBC's Daily Politics and political editor of the Yorkshire Evening Post. She's one of the most highly respected political journalists in Westminster, but as a small child, lived in just one room in West Bromwich with her sister and her parents. In this podcast, she talks about curiosity, the power of being nice and the importance of parties. And no, we didn't talk about that party because it was recorded before. Hello, Anne. I'm delighted to welcome you to The Art of Work. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me, Christina. So we we spoke an hour ago to check the tech and I, of course, was putting together the questions because like many journalists, I can't do anything until I'm right up against the deadline. How are you on that front? I also am a deadline junkie. I mean, I've been a journalist for 25 years and you learn pretty quickly that, well, I think for me, definitely, I work at my best when I'm under pressure. This is my excuse for leaving things until the last minute. I mean, it's slightly different now working in broadcast because my job is busy from the minute I start work um, at about sort of like 10.30ish officially um, in the morning. And I do have to work at a certain level all the way through the day because there are various deadlines I have to meet while I'm going through. So it's slightly different to when I used to be a newspaper journalist, which meant literally having to write maybe one or two stories for different editions during the day. So my, my, my sort of working day um, does um, require me to be to work at a certain level and to be hitting various deadlines or time frames throughout the day. Mm. And what effect would you say that has on the rest of your life? If there is a rest of your life. Um, sometimes it's kind of hard to have a rest of my yeah. life, um, simply because working in politics, I'm sure anybody will tell you, um, it's difficult and it's really busy. And in particular, the last sort of seven or eight years have been unbelievably busy. I mean, I um, started working in politics in 2002. And I do remember my first boss when I was working in politics and the great John Hipwood saying to me, you know, it's often famine or feast. You know, you're really, really busy and then it gets really quiet. And we knew our quiet times might be during the parliamentary recess, in particular in the summer. I think basically since about 2016, 2015, really, that's all completely gone away because we've had the most amazing run of political stories, um, sort of the, the kind of stories that you might say, oh, wow, this is the story of a lifetime until the next story of a, of a lifetime comes along. So, um, so yeah, so there is no feminine feast. It's just basically feast, feast, mm. feast. It never stops. Uh, unbelievable. I mean, I, I feel completely hooked on it and nobody even pays me to do it anymore most of the time. So, <laughs> but I want to talk more, in fact, about the kind of pressures of work later. But uh, someone said to me recently over a lunch, she said, um, and she meant this quite seriously, she said, so tell me, are journalists awful? And I thought, no, they're my favourite people in the world. You know, I, I became a full time journalist when I was 39 and I felt as if I'd found my tribe. How do you feel about journalists? 
Do you know, it's it's interesting when people find out, I have a similar reaction often when people find out I'm a journalist, they're quite surprised because the reaction often is, oh, but you're nice. Mm. And um, in fact, um, I think uh, Peter Cardwell, a former colleague of mine, wrote a book quite recently and he referred to me as the nicest journalist in yeah. Western. So I'm not sure yeah. whether to take that as a compliment or whether that means I'm doing my job properly or not. Not that journalists should be hated. Um, but yeah, for me... I think journalism is often misunderstood. People have this caricature of what a journalist is. And, you know, they're quite happy to be dismissive and say, oh, you know, this terrible phrase, fake news. And I mm. hate the fact that it's now become part of our language, but terrible. unfortunately it has. And I think, um, you know, the way that journalists are vilified, you know, it's, it's really sad. And actually it's really damaging for our democracy because what we do and the lengths that we go to to kind of expose stories, make sure things are correct, make sure that our reports are balanced. We go to absolutely great, great, great lengths. And I think a lot of people don't realise or appreciate that because they have this caricature of what a journalist is, as somebody who's nosy, who's interfering in people's business, who, you know, steps over the line, you know, who pursues people who are in the news who don't want to be, want to be pursued. And the fact is the great majority of journalists are actually just trying to make a difference and mm. to expose wrongdoing. And in fact, you know, if you look at the achievements, uh, you know, the things that have been exposed by journalists, which have actually ended up in changes in government policy or, you know, really great wrongs being righted. You know, there's a, there's a huge long list and that will continue. So I do get a bit cross when people have that dismissive attitude and it's quite surprising how many people you know intelligent people have that reaction when you know I say that I'm a journalist it's interesting that the reaction is slightly different if I describe myself as a tv producer mm. I think they don't see tv producers as journalists but I have always seen myself as a journalist and I always will very that's very interesting I mean actually the person who asked me that was a publisher and I thought well I've worked in publishing and I worked with writers for many years and some of my closest friends are writers just as some of my closest friends are journalists mm. but actually I would say that journalists are much more focused on other people mm. because you know they are engaging or we are engaging in the world all the time and driven by curiosity whereas writers and you know I, I do write now write books you know you're sitting at home in your room and it's you and your screen and it can certainly foster um you know self-absorption if not narcissism in a way that I don't think does apply to journalism I think that's absolutely true I think you know one of the key things that you need to have is an interest in things and in people to be a journalist I mean if you're not interested in what's going on in the world around you if you're not interested in people's stories if you're shy about talking to people you shouldn't be a journalist because that is what the job is mm. you know you have to often go and talk to people that, you know, maybe they're people who are classed as really important. I don't know whether it's a, you know, a secretary of state or what have you. Or, you know, maybe you have to talk to somebody who you might not see as being somebody as important, but obviously they really are. It might be, you know, a parent, um, a bereaved parent, but they have a story to tell about what happened to their child. And you have to be able to speak to these people and to switch you know you mm. may go from speaking to I don't know the health secretary you know to speaking to you know to Pamela you know whose daughter died when she was 15 because you know she overdosed or what have you and you you do need that 
gen- genuine and general interest in people and the ability to speak to people and to draw their stories out as well. Absolutely. Now, that to me is a person who is empathetic because you do need empathy to be a journalist. And I think empaths are really nice people, basically. So we've established we're both completely marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> so now we'll move on to the politicians. You've, you've built up political contacts over nearly 20 years working mm-hmm. as a journalist in Westminster. Have you, what, what's, okay, so first of all, what would you say, this is, you know, broad stereotyping, mm. what is the difference, is there a difference between politicians as a breed and journalists, and if so, what would you say it is? I'll be absolutely honest with you, I'm not sure there's a um, huge difference, mm. I, I'll tell you why, and um, because most people who go into politics, whether it's as a journalist or as a, a politician, um, as an MP or a peer or what have you, the majority of them go in there because they know they'll be in a position of power to actually affect proper change. Mm. You know, it's one thing kind of being a campaigner and shouting about things, but to actually change things, you know, being a politician or being a journalist with a voice which is amplified, you can actually change things. And it's interesting because you do sometimes get some crossover. You know, there have been some famous mm. crossovers, you know, for example, you know, the Michael Goes of this world, the Boris Johnson of this world, were all were journalists and then went on to become politicians, MPs. There are lots more examples. They're just the two that, that spring immediately mm. to mind. So, you know, you do have some crossover. And, you know, and also, this is maybe not as good, but, you know, you do find um, probably a little bit less now than when I first started 20 years ago, but often you will find that politicians and journalists often went to the same schools, you know, the same types of schools, the private schools like the Eatons and so on. And mm. they may have been at the same university. I mean, that, that's still the case now. So I would say uh, politics generally attracts a certain type of person. But I do think the majority of politicians and journalists go into it because they genuinely want to make a difference. So I think there's quite a lot of similarities actually there. But the, probably the one big difference with um, politicians maybe, and I think a lot of people would admit, you know, when they go into politics, yeah, they do want to make a difference. But if you ask maybe, I don't know, a quarter of them, would you want to be prime minister or would you want to lead your party? I suspect they'd probably say yes, maybe about mm. a quarter. Not all of them do, but I think a lot of them do. And that's, you know, ambition, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, you do need the, the ambitious people to be at the forefront, you know, and someone needs to lead the party. But I think um, quite a lot of them would probably say, yeah, I'd like to be prime minister. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really interesting. I, I realise you will have to remain politically neutral during mm. this interview but in, in, I've been watching the Blair Brown years and mm. um and actually very I mean god it seemed like an age of innocence mm. now and I don't have to be politically neutral so mm. so you know what I felt watching that was that these were really heavyweight politicians who really wanted to make things better for people mm. and when I look at quite a lot of the government now I think these are people who really want to be in power but I don't mm. have that sense that they really want to make um, make things better how I, I realize you can't sort of give away any kind of political um, uh, allegiances but do you think that has changed at all not in, necessarily in terms of government would you say the kinds of people who've gone in, gone into politics have changed at all or what do you think the sense I'm getting there has to do with 
Oh gosh, that's quite a difficult one. I mean, I know what you mean. Uh, I mean, it's it's always easier to look back on things with a little bit of hindsight as well. Yeah. And I think if you look at the Blair and Brown years, I think Brown in particular, because he has this reputation of being somebody who is absolutely committed to public service. And I think you can kind of see um, from the things that he's done since he's been prime minister, you know, the fact that he's been mm. focusing on, you know, education for girls, the fact that he's taken on this role trying to get um, the COVID vaccines out. So I think maybe um, I see what you're saying in particular with um, Gordon Brown, yes. who I sort of see as somebody who saw service more than uh, as the most important thing about, about, about his role. I mean, in terms of people wanting to be in power for power's sake, I don't doubt that is the case for many politicians <laughs> who are at the top of the tree right now. But I would still say there is intrinsically and basically with the majority of them they do actually want to make a difference but Mm. yes I mean also as well you have this thing about um this this difference between Labour and um, the Conservatives the traditional view that you know Labour have always seemed to feel more comfortable in opposition whereas the Conservatives Mm. you know they are the party that just wants to get in power and they will do anything to get in power and in lots of ways that focus on actually getting into power you know that has to be admired because basically you can't do an awful lot if you're in opposition absolutely the the, the basic thing is you can shout as much as you want this is what we would do if we were in power if you're not in power you can't do well I say you can't do anything yeah you can you can um sort of um you know help to influence things but if you want to really really change the country you need to be in power yeah. and that is the one thing to be really really admired I think the Conservative Party are absolutely single-minded about yeah. getting into power. Yes and that's what Blair understood and that's what mm. very few uh, Labour leaders have since then. Mm. Um, Angela Rayner recently called Tory scum mm. and quite a few Labour MPs have said they couldn't be friends with the Tory. I assume you are friendly across the political yes. spectrum. What did you think when she said that? I think that when she said that, she was um, playing to um, her audience. I mean, she was at yes. the, uh, the Labour yes. Party conference. You know, the, the, the Labour activists there at uh, at this um, uh, fringe meeting. So she's sort of playing to her to to her to her, to her people, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I have always had an issue with the you know never kissed a Tory mm. thing. I couldn't be friends with the Tory mm. Tory scum. I mean, it's very it's a very simplistic approach. Mm. And, you know, I've had friends send to say to me, oh, how come, you know, you're friendly with that conservative MP or how come you're friendly with that person? They said X, Y or Z. And I'm very much of the case. Look, I have to take people as I find them. I don't like personally that kind of language in politics. I think it's uncalled for. I don't think it helps. I don't think it's necessary. And I don't think that, you know, describing all Tories as um, people who, who are uncaring is helpful either because that's not that's not the truth we know that's not the truth but it's a caricature and you know when Angela Rayner used that term it was in a very particular context you know and also you know that's that's the way that she wants to express herself you know that's what she does but I I know that personally I mean obviously I wouldn't anyway because I'm a journalist and I'll I do have to be careful about the kind of language I use. But, you know, I look at politics across the, across the spectrum and I see issues that I don't like, that I don't agree with. 
But, you know, if I had to express that, I would express it in a tempered way, in a way that I think would be uh, sort of less, less, hyper, less, less hyperbole, I think. <laughs> but obviously, politicians are politicians, you know, and they do certain things and use certain language to, to speak to their people. You know, and I would argue that I would um, have issues with some of the language that's been used by conservative um, MP to describe various things that I wouldn't necessarily agree with and I wouldn't use myself um, either. So I think it was a difficult one, but I think you have to look at the context uh, where that term was used. It wasn't like it was used in, in the chamber, but it was used at, at a private, well, I don't know whether it was private, but at this um, very small um, fringe meeting mm. at the Labour Party conference. But I do think language matters and it's not language that I particularly like. Have many have many of your political contacts become friends yes actually um lots of them in weird weirdly um i don't know whether you heard the ping but about three minutes ago something pinged and it's actually a former special advisor just Mm. asking me to go for lunch (laughs) i know that's a a friendly lunch i mean uh, we kind of still occasionally do business in terms of work yeah but um but this person's become a friend so yes um, i mean i have made lots of friends through politics who began as colleagues well sorry began as professional contacts mm. and ended up becoming friends and I've been to at least two weddings actually really? people that I met who I first met because I was I was working uh yeah so I've made lots of really good friends and that includes special advisors pollsters and actually a couple of MPs as well mm. so tell us what it's like to go to to cover the party conferences exhausting Mm. if I say it in one word Um, it's really interesting because going as a journalist normally when you arrive at party conference you're either the second one down in like a series of three or four that you have to do back to back or you're at the beginning thinking oh my gosh I've got three or four weeks of this to come Mm. so first of all it's exhausting it's fascinating because it's kind of like a big get together party for the actual party members you can see the excitement it's really palpable when you're there you know for example you might be walking around I don't know the conference center and you'll see people thinking oh good goodness me there's such and such and they're looking over and it's maybe it's the, the shadow justice secretary walking past or you know the the, the, the health secretary is just over there chatting on that stall. So you see these politicians that you see every day, but being almost lauded as sort of rock stars because they're there with their people, you know, the party members and they're going around um, taking selfies. So it's kind of, you know, it's exhausting, but, you know, it's really interesting. It's fascinating to watch. And, you know, it's it's also difficult because you're there as a journalist. So you're observing, you're seeing what happened, you're watching speeches, you're going to fringe meetings. And some of them are actually genuinely interesting. There's really, really fascinating fringe meetings in particular that go on, but you're constantly working. So you might think, oh, that one looks really interesting. Oh, but actually, I need to go and cover that for X, Y, you know, for this reason or for that reason. So it's, um, and also you spend a lot of your time sort of socialising as well, because the social mm. aspect of it is is really important. Just seeing people, even if it's just for like a really quick chat, for a quick um, cup of tea, or actually going out for a proper dinner in the evening where everyone can relax and just um, chat. I mean, a lot of these meetings that you have with contacts with politicians or what, what have you, 
they're very, very relaxed. And often they're not specifically because you're looking for a story. Sometimes it's just staying in contact with people that are important to know that, you know, I'm still around. And yes, please do call me if there's anything you ever want to tell us or anything that we can kind of expand upon, you know, in terms of our coverage on the show. So, so do you go to the parties and, and isn't that knackering? Yeah, it is. And to be honest, I find it really difficult because you get invited to these events. I often make about a quarter of them mm. if I'm lucky because I, when I'm at party conference, my alarm goes off at 4.30 in the morning. Oh, my goodness. Because I have to be at the live point at 5 a.m. because we go live at 6. So I get there at about 5, maybe 10 past 5. Mm. I'm there with the crew. And with our with our correspondent, um, it's, it's our political editor who's um, Ranveer Singh. So I'm there just to make sure that everyone's happy, everything's running right. We know what we're doing in terms of our live hits. You know, do we have a VT that Ranveer needs to voice and so on? And then also, I'll be there to make sure the guests actually turn up. They're in the right place. They're properly briefed and so on. So, yeah, so I'm on the live from 5 a.m. So you can imagine when you get invited to an event that starts at 10.30 p.m. I have to mm. think long and hard oh about whether or not I'm actually going to make it. So it's... um. You know, so I'd go, I, this is what I do, and this is terrible to admit, I say yes to everything I'm invited to, knowing full well I probably won't get to everything. And I'll try and go to the things which I think are really important. You know, there, there's certain big set pieces that you have at conference, like, for example, at the Labour conference, it was always you have to get an invitation to the Mirror Party. At the Conservative conference, oh, you have to get an invitation to the Spectator Party. And basically what that, that, what that was all about was the fact that at the Mirror Party, the whole of the front bench would turn up. And at the Spectator Party, the whole of the front bench yeah. would turn up. So basically you've got the Prime Minister going to the Spectator Party, you've got Keir Starmer going to the Mirror Party. That, that yeah. always happens. The parties are also... They're important as well. Again, it's just being seen and just being friendly to people and maintaining those contacts because, you know, as a journalist, your contacts are key and it's all about building trust. And, you know, that that can take some time. But, you, you know, I mean, I know when I started as a journalist 25 years ago, I was given a little black book and my tutor, Brian, told me, look, keep this book, write all your numbers down keep your contacts, look after them because you don't know where they will end up. And it was such good advice to me because, I mean, I've still got the book. It's ripped yeah. somewhere. It's in a drawer somewhere. I found it like last year. But when I look back at it, I'll find contacts for like a lowly press officer I dealt with maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago. Oh, that person's now working at number 10. Oh, hang on! I've got a number for such and such. Oh, right. Okay, they're now on the front bench. So it, it, it's 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 that kind of stuff. So that's why contacts are really important. And like the partying, I say the partying, going to these events. You know, you are going as a journalist, but you know you can enjoy yourself as well. But it is about maintaining those contacts and just being seen, so they know you're still there. Mm. And so that's, you know, that's some of your working year is in this incredibly sort of intensive situation. But talk us through an average working day when you're not at a party conference. So my average working day, I wake up just before six o'clock and believe it or not, I wake up naturally at that time. I think it's the fear because <laughs> Good Morning Britain goes on air at 6 a.m. Yeah. So I normally wake up just before six o'clock. Mm. And then what I'll do, I'll just double check um, 
the running order. Well, I, there's an email which goes out to let us know what, what, what's happening in the morning because sometimes that might be different to how I left it last night because there might be breaking news overnight. So I just double-check to see if any of my guests have been dropped or moved or what have you. And then I will normally watch the top of the show. Then I might go off and make a coffee. <laughs> then I will watch the political interviews from home. Um, so I, cause I'm not actually in the office, so I'll kind of watch and just keep a check on things and just see how the interviews go and so on. I'll normally tweet a little bit, just a couple of the lines from the interviews or what have you. I mean, some mornings there might be a little bit of uh, action from advisors who maybe not so happy with a particular interview um. or want to discuss um, particular issues that came up. I mean, that ha- happens a lot less now. It happened an awful lot, you know, a couple of years ago. So I'd often be called. And I noticed as well that people get a lot more jumpy during um, election periods as mm. well, just about um, interviews and so on. So, yeah, so sometimes I'll, it doesn't happen very often in now, but I used to get quite a lot of phone calls first thing in the morning from often upset special advisors or political advisors um, pointing various things out that they weren't happy about. Sometimes... They weren't justified. Very occasionally, I would take their point. Is that so that's because, what is, that, is that because you you would have agreed questions that wouldn't be asked, or because I mean, no, we know. don't. We don't. We never agree questions. Mm. Normally, it's things like, oh, um, you know, why? What? Normally, it would be things we hadn't asked. For for example, uh, you yeah, might have a yeah. minister coming on to talk about some announcement, and maybe the announcement is quite dull. And maybe the presenter yeah. don't really ask. They just yeah. mention it at the beginning, don't really ask about it. Often it's things that we haven't asked. Mm. Sometimes it might be the style of interview, um, you know, that they didn't like the approach of the interview. So it's it's various things. Mm. And then I start looking at emails and replying to things at about 9, 9.30 normally. And I just double check just to see what I should be thinking about for news, political news for the next day. And it might be me just double checking what's on the agenda on the House of Commons or just checking um, about what to expect. Like for example, to, uh, we've got um, the budget coming up and um, me just double, double checking that we've got the right guests lined up and so on. Mm. And then we have our um, morning editorial meeting, the, the one that I, where I talk to um, my boss and my colleagues at about 1130 and by then, the, the programme's editor has an idea of what they want. So they talk through the timings, they're looking at which guests are made and which guests won't make it. I mean, for us, it's pretty straightforward in terms of politics. I mean, normally we have a government minister on every day. We have sometimes have a, a Labour front bencher on as well. Then sometimes we'll have other, other people on, I know, like, say, uh, the Gordon Browns of this world or what have mm. you or you know as, as in like big big name get political guests who aren't necessarily um front benches anymore and then I will then not get to work with um researching and writing um very complicated and detailed briefing notes for the presenters mm. so while I'm doing that I also have to go to the lobby briefing so the lobby briefing sometimes clashes with our morning meeting so I sometimes miss the morning meeting because the lobby briefing is really important just mm. in terms of knowing what's happening with government and getting responses on the big issues of the day. And then I might be watching part of a debate or part of something that's going on in the chamber. I mean, I've been working from home a lot for the last 18 months, like most people. So I am 
mostly at home mm. but I've just started going back into the into the office and into parliament mm. so it's kind of a bit of hybrid working so mm. a lot of them what I do now is on the telephone or watching on the tv so that was one of the reasons why I think being at conference was so important because just actually seeing people again because I've yeah. not a lot of people haven't seen me or mm. they haven't seen many people because people just haven't been around so yeah so I'll then start you know writing my brief researching keeping a watch on the news um, you know, if I were if I were at Parliament, I might say have a coffee or a lunch with somebody, whether it's an MP or an advisor or what have you. Obviously, being at home, it's slightly different. And then um, I might also be arranging for pre-recorded interviews if there's something we need for our news bulletins as well. But while all this is going on, I'm constantly updating my news desk and my colleagues about new lines which might be coming through or breaking news or what have you. Um, and then there might be other briefings I have to go to in the afternoon. Like, for example, we've got COP coming up in the G20. Mm. So um, we have to go to background briefings just to find out exactly what's happening and to make sure we've got um, we're clear about the government's line and, um, you know, about any big um, meetings or bilaterals that might be coming up. So, I mean, no day is the same. And it's a matter of um, balancing um, what we can and what we can't do because um, you know there are so many things going on there are so many briefings there are so many things happening in the in the commons chamber so many things happening in committee so you have to kind of pick and choose what you actually focus on because mm. the political news is this huge huge behemoth there's so so much going on so it's a matter of picking out what's relevant and then I have you know then condensing all of that down into what um, Good Morning um, Britain viewers will be interested in and what's relevant to them. So basically, most of my my work is actually gearing towards the next day's programme. Because mm. obviously, we're on air at six o'clock, so we have to plan the programme the day before. So I... And the way I see the programme or the way the politics working at, say, 11.30 in the morning might look completely different by the time we get to six or seven o'clock at mm. night. You know, there's this, the famous term, the U-turn, you know. <laughs> um, you're looking at, the, you know, or oh, the government's planning to do this. Then suddenly there's an announcement at five o'clock. The government's doing the complete opposite of what <laughs> you expect them to be doing. So, you know, you have all of that. And just trying, you basically spend a lot of time on treading water trying to keep your head above above water just to make sure that you're covering absolutely everything and you're across everything but even then you know I finish work at about 8 30 ish in the evening and you know I have to kind of then just say look I'm done now I mostly don't hand over but occasionally I might have to hand over a little bit of work and then sometimes the newspapers come out at 10 o'clock and you think, oh, wow, and they've got like, you know, a really great story or a really brilliant leak or whatever. And you know that's going to impact the interview that you've prepared for for the next morning. So then the night team will normally pick that up. I mean, if it's really, really big, I will get involved. Like I think when, when the Prime Minister um, was uh, admitted to hospital, I think went into intensive care, it was relatively late, I think, when we heard that information. So we just kind of carried on working late. To be honest, um, my working hours do tend to slip because I am kind of on it and have to be aware from from first thing in the morning and you don't really switch off until you go to sleep, which is not that healthy, but it's the way it is. Mm. Yeah, Um, I mean, from my years on a paper uh, I didn't I didn't have the role you had and I I never edit actually I well I edited on comment I never edited on on news but um 
I, it always made me laugh when people talked about kind of life work balance and boundaries and you think yeah. what are you talking about but it is that is kind of the deal isn't it but you, you presumably do relax at, at some point how, how do you what do you do to relax um what do I do to relax so I read mm. I and I play various musical instruments mm. to varying degrees so I've, I've played guitar since I was like seven or eight or something wow. so I play guitar I am learning to play the piano I've been learning for about three years I mean it's it's quite hard it's amazing how difficult things become as you get older mm. and um, I've got a trumpet because I used to play mm. the tuba when I was a little kid and then um, there was a guy at work who was selling a trumpet so I bought a trumpet so I played the trumpet again and this is a complete like there's two new things I've been doing in the last uh, year I take drumming lessons. So I'm training to be the next Dave Grohl. Fantastic. So I do drumming lessons. I go to this place um, in Hackney and it's brilliant. I absolutely love it. I do it on a Thursday morning. And then the new thing, which I haven't even got anywhere with yet, I bought a cello. So I'm going to learn to play the cello. So for me, it's music and reading. Those are my two um, relaxation things. But I mean, I I kind of... um, see things and I just I just dive in so basically I'm trying to learn what three different instruments at the moment <laughs> that is really I'm I'm literally kind of open mouthed I can't believe you're doing that on top of your job really incredible good good for you my well goodness. I'm trying my best I mean the one thing about working from home is that um, you know, this uh, the time I'm talking to you now, I would often have as my sort of relaxation time. So I try and do things in the morning before I have in between like watching bits of the show mm. and starting work proper. Mm. I try and do my things. And for example, my drumming lessons I do at 9.30 because I can, it's after the show's finished or I rush to my, my drumming lesson that I can rush back and get back in time to start my editorial meeting. So I think um, actually the lockdown and the working from home has helped me have a much much better balance because the mm. fact is I can fit things in where I where I would normally have been commuting I'm doing things for myself mm. which is what the big attraction for me and I know working from home hasn't been possible for everyone and doesn't work for everyone I'm one of the lucky ones where working from home really did work I and mean, I'm now doing hybrid as in I'm in the office a couple of days I'm at home a couple of days and it and it's a good balance actually mm. but I do appreciate the time I do have at home so I can do all my little play all my different, my different musical instruments really badly mostly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and are there any aspects of your job that you really don't like? Um, yeah. <laughs> what I mean, one of the things that I don't enjoy, and I think anyone would say this, it's the phone bashing. Now, phone mm. bashing for the uninitiated, you'll know what I mean, but if you, are, if you need to find a particular guest to fit a particular story that you're doing, she needs someone to maybe give a particular view so that something's balanced. Mm. So for me, when we had um, those dark days when the government refused to do Good Morning Britain, they wouldn't let any ministers on Good Morning Britain, mm. um, we tried desperately every day to get a conservative voice because we thought it was important just in terms of balance because we were obviously we were speaking to the other parties it was in the middle of the the height of the pandemic and I remember there was one particular day where myself and two colleagues I think we rang it must have been I think 80 80 plus conservative MPs oh. trying to get someone to come on the program to just to 
kind of put the conservative line or to defend the government or what have you. Now, phone bashing is literally, well, I suppose in the old fashioned days, you'd actually be picking up a receiver and bashing it down every time you finish each call. But literally just calling people one after the other, saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. That is not much fun. Well, I want to go back to where it all started. And I, I saw a very moving tweet of yours in response to a programme Charlene White made recently. You said, living in one room with a black landlord, as that's where we were welcome, tick. First black family on the street. Neighbours end up loving us because our parents were so lovely, tick. Not being able to trace back further than grandparents, tick. I think yeah. that's the experience of a lot of Caribbean people who came over here in Whenever. Well, when did your parents come over? And would you tell us a bit about your family story and your childhood? Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I love talking about my parents. So my, my dad's passed away. My mum's still with us. Mm. So my dad came over to to Albury in the West Midlands and then West Bromwich mm. in 1958. Mm. And then to, which what was he left my mum back in Jamaica. They got married. And then this is quite typical of the time. Um, he came over, found somewhere to live, got a job save some money and then he sent for my mum they call it sending for so then my mum came over in 1961 I think it was so the pair of them worked um they both worked in factories my dad in fact the factory my dad got a job at he worked at until he retired you know um at 67 Mm. so they both had jobs they worked they lived in this house in in West Bromwich with a woman who ended up being my godparent Mm. my godmother so my sister my older sister Janet was born there I was born there and at one point up until I was about two or three months old uh, literally my my mom my dad my sister Janet and me were living in one room in Miss Bell's house in Tyne Street in West Bromwich. So that's where I started my life, living in one room. He had like a shared kitchen. But then they managed to find um, a council house. And so we moved to Wensbury and we got our first council house, a little two bedroom house. And then um, loads more children arrived. So we ended up with um, five kids. So wow. I'm one of five. Wow. Um, so four girls and a boy. And so we lived in that little house for another four or five years I think and then we moved to the house which was our proper childhood home which is literally about four streets away and um, so we grew up in this kind of again it was not a huge house um I shared a room with my three sisters my brother had his own room which we all hated the fact that he got his own room because he was a boy (laughs) and um we we so so basically growing up um we were always the first black family anyway. We were the first black family on our street. We are the only black family in our school for many, many years. And I think like another black family suddenly arrived in our school. It was like, oh my goodness me. And so we, we lived and we lived on this street um, until basically till I left, till I left home. And in fact, uh, my mum and dad lived in the same house for, and they only moved when my dad became ill and they moved uh, across the road <laughs> to literally no. the opposite. And we only moved; be- they only moved because my dad um, became disabled and so needed a m- more accessible place to live. So mm. the, the room, the the house opposite, had already had all the adaptations done. So they moved across the road and uh, moved into there. And my mom is still in the same house. So my oh. mom's basically lived on the same street and since nineteen seventy six. And so, and the importance of that street, I think, because, you know, we were the first black family on that street. And uh, it's one of these things where, you know, when 
you know, you, you, you're initially seen with suspicion. Mm. Well, you were, you were then. I don't know how much has changed now. You were initially seen, viewed with suspicion because obviously you look and sound different. But mum and dad were just really, really, really kind people. We experienced um, racism. It was the 70s and 80s, mm. um, a lot of it. Not from our street, from the people that knew us. It was um, some people at school or people who didn't know who we were. And it gets me mad that you kind of had to be a nice person to be liked. Yeah. But anyway, that's, that's another story that we could talk about. So, yeah, so we, that's where we grew up. And so I um, went to university, went to Reading University, um, which is a real eye-opener. <laughs> it was, you know, it's like well, something's a massive, massive culture shock. Um, it really was for me, but it was a really great experience. And then after I left um, Reading University, I got on a traineeship um, to be a journalist with the Express and Star, which is a big regional newspaper which covers kind of the black country, Wolverhampton, and their sister newspaper, the Shropshire Star. Mm. So I um, trained with them which is a really, really good um, grounding in mm. journalism. And um, I was a news reporter, then I was a news editor. And then I moved to London to be the Express and Star's deputy political editor um, because they had an opening. And I had only intended to stay, not for very long, I didn't really want to move to London. I just moved because um, they needed someone quickly to take on this role. But then... I realised that I actually really enjoyed it. And I think once you start working at Parliament, you realise what a privilege it is just to be there, the things that you see, the things that you hear. Just being able to walk into the House of Parliament was just like something which just blew my mind. So I worked for the Express and Star there as a deputy political editor. I moved to be the political editor of the Yorkshire Evening Post and then from there, I went on to work for the BBC. Um, it was the uh, forerunner of the um, Politics Live. It was called The Daily Politics, mm. which was presented by um, Andrew Neil, Joe Coburn, presents it now. I've, I've, so I've I... been on it, but I think Andrew Neil didn't want me back. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, um, I mean, gosh, this is going back such, um, such a long time now. It was, would have been what, 2007 or something like that. And so I was a reporter on the daily politics for until 2009. Then I left to go to what was then um, good um, GMTV mm. uh, as a reporter first and then as a producer. And now I'm the senior political producer for now what is called Good Morning Britain. It's actually been through a few little changes along the way as well, but we won't mention those. We're, lo- we're loving Good Morning Britain. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we should make clear that uh, being a senior political producer means actually being the boss as a political producer. It's, uh, it's not, it's a kind of slightly ambiguous title. It sounds like you yeah, might have a I kind mean, of... Yeah, I mean, you know, titles and titles are basically, I'm kind of um, in charge of making sure that what we're covering politically is what we need to cover and that, you know, we've got good relationships with, you know, the government, with different parties and so on, that we're focused on what we should be focused on. So, yeah, that, that, that's what my job is. And what did your, I mean, your parents must have, well, they must, your mum must be so proud. But what, what were their ambitions for you? Do you know, their ambitions, they weren't huge. All they wanted was for us to go to school, get an education and get steady jobs mm. because for them 
getting an education was not straightforward mm. you know they both had to leave school at 13 my mum had to leave because um, her father died uh, and she had to go to work basically you know uh, very my, my, I should explain my mum is now 18 now my parents are they had us quite late partly because it was part of the immig- immigrant experience mm. so my mum had to go to work at 13 my dad had to leave school for a similar reason you know it's like if you can't pay to carry on past a certain age, you just leave and you you have to work. And so my dad in particular was, was very bright at school, but never had the chance. So I think for mom and dad, it was really important that we got a chance of a, a proper, decent education. So it was like, go to school, listen to what your teachers tell you, then get a steady job. And I tell you what, if any of us ever got into trouble at school, there was more trouble waiting at home. Mm. You did not play up at school. You did not answer back. You you made sure that you worked. And so it's interesting, all of us at school, we just really behaved ourselves and we're like model model pupils. You know, I used to get te- called teacher's pet. I didn't care though. I thought, yeah, I'm going to be teacher's pet. I just wanted, I just want to do my work. So I went to the local primary school, went to the local comprehensive. You know, they weren't like amazing schools. They were just normal, the local school on our doorstep. And, you know, I did okay at school. I mean, you know, then I went on, did my A-levels and went on to do, um, you know, a degree. Because, I mean, I'm not, like, saying I'm super bright, but I was probably, like, brighter than average. So, um, and we all took different routes. So I think for mum and dad, that's all they wanted for us, and just to have steady jobs. Mm. So I know that, um, I'll give you a funny example. My sister, um, Sandra, when she got her first proper job after leaving university, she worked at um, the local hospital, my mum thought this was marvellous and thought, that's it, she's made it, she's got this job at, um, at Walsall Manor Hospital. But then when Sandra then moved somewhere else for like a, a, you know, a, a more senior role, my mum was dismayed, like, why are you leaving? Like, because this is a more senior job. Mm. And um, Ranveer Singh said on uh, Good Morning Britain after the, the, the disgraceful racism after the Euro final towards Marcus Rashford and Bakaya Saka, she said, um, you're privileged if you don't have to think about it, which is probably the kind of a very good definition, really. How far would you say that has changed for you? Yeah, it's, it's changed. I'll tell you why it's changed, because I suppose the fact that I live in London, which is a very, very diverse city, um, means that, yeah, it... I, I may, I think I'm made to think about it a lot less. Mm. I mean, I think it was, it was, it happened a lot more when I was younger. So obviously we lived in a very sort of um, white area. It was the seventies and the eighties and the nineties, I guess. But, but not to say that this is not something which is not still an issue. Mm. You know, I, uh, you know, I've been, I've talked about this before, but I've been mistaken for, uh, waitress mm. at um, posh events attended mm. by politicians where I've been there as a journalist and there was a particular occasion where I was standing there talking to a group of people uh, an MP turned around with an empty glass saw me and just handed me the glass and I just took the glass I was so shocked um, you know and there's been I've been mis- I've been mis- mixed up with um, Dawn Butler mm. <laughs> I don't really look like Dawn but we've got similar hair uh, you know, and th- those are just like two two small examples of things which have happened um, around the parliamentary estate. But you know, I 
there are the occasional things which have happened even in London, you know, not so long ago. And I'll, I'll, I'll use the term because it's not, it's offensive and not that bad, but I got called a darky. I mean, it was literally, I mean, I, I, I'm laughing because I couldn't believe it, but I actually got called a darky. It was about, I think I wrote about it on Facebook. It was about three or four years ago, not that long ago. So, I mean, <laughs> it's still there. And like Ranveer is absolutely right. You are privileged if you don't have to think mm. about um you know your race but the fact is you know you do have to think about it and you know you you see the differences in the way that people can people are sometimes treated I mean I you know I just try and go about my life and do what I'm doing but you know when you have someone um coming up to you and saying things like oh oh really oh is that what your job is oh right so where are you from then and I'm like well I'm from Wensbury no 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 I mean like where are you from from Bongo Bongo land yeah 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 if you're talking about where my parents are from I mean I'm quite happy to talk about where my parents are from you know they're Jamaican that that is my heritage and I'm really really proud of it but you know it's like I was talking to a friend of mine a black woman who was actually on her way to do an interview with the BBC and um, she got stopped um, at a checkpoint at a tube station because they were looking for sort of um, gang members. Mm. And she was like, well, I'm actually on my way to do an interview for the BBC. And when she talked to um, other people who were there to be guests on this particular show, none of them, had, they're all white, none of them had been stopped. She was the only person who'd been stopped mm. and she was black. So that kind of tells you about some of the unconscious bias, which you do sometimes still have to deal with. But I have to say, it, you know, it has, it is different work in working and living in a place like London, which is very, very diverse compared to growing up, um, you know, in, in an area which was not diverse. And often the racism, I think, just came from mostly, not sometimes from a place, uh, a nasty place, but often from a place um of of ignorance you know just throwaway comments such as oh you'd be really pretty if you were white Mm -hmm. you know it's it's thing it's things like little I say little that's quite a big thing but it's things things like that or people just assuming oh yeah you must be into rap music oh I bet you can dance oh can you twerk for me literally I've had men say to me can you twerk you know it's stuff it's stuff like that it's still there I mean, it's awful. It's awful. Obviously, we, we know that this happens and you know, plenty of people I know have also experienced it and continue to experience it on a daily basis. But it's very, it's very upsetting to hear it. Is there, are there any positive qualities you would say you have developed from these terrible experiences that have helped you in your career? I think uh, resilience mm. is one because you have to be resilient. I'll tell you something else as well. And I was talking about this um, to a friend not so long back. I'm quite proud of the fact that I can converse with, have a connection with, talk to people from all walks mm. of life. Because what I noticed is particularly when I first came to Parliament you know, in 2002, I think there were a lot of people who worked around Parliament, like journalists, if I talk about journalists back then, who basically, I think, didn't really have any um, sort of uh, black friends or friends who were from a different class than them. Basically, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of them were just literally all of the people that they knew were white middle class. 
so I remember when I first came to uh, Parliament and I'm just, you know, I'm from the black country, I'm friendly, I'm chatty. So, you know, if I'm walking down a corridor and I see someone coming the other way, we're in, a, in the House of Parliament, I'll normally smile and nod or say good morning or good afternoon, da, da, da. especially in, in uh, it, where we work as journalists in, in, in um, the House of Commons because the, the corridors are really narrow. So I remember when I first joined, and I used to say, good morning. There was a one particular journalist i say good morning to, and he would just kind of look away and not oh. respond. And so I made it my challenge to make him respond to me. So he did it a couple of times, and I thought, right. So I remember I was walking down the corridor, saw him, and I said, good morning. He looked away, and I said, good morning. I said it again. Went, oh, 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 good morning, he said. And it turned out he was just a little bit shy, and I think he'd never actually spoken to somebody who wasn't just like oh. him, it, it like, as in like a normal run of things, we end up becoming really quite pally. So I think, and for me, the the best thing I think about what, what I've been through is the fact that you learn how to speak to different types of people. I have a wide range of friends and acquaintances. I know working class people, middle class, some people teetering on the upper class, um, different races, uh, you know, people from such different walks of life and I think that gives me it's really really rich and it gives me a better understanding of people and of life which I'm really really proud of. And what advice would you give to a youngster starting out now trying to figure out how the hell to earn a living? You mean in journalism or no, just in, generally? In anything actually because the world has changed so much and yeah. it's a really difficult thing to work out and and you know we spend so much of our time working and you can get stuck on routes that kind of lead nowhere. I would say and I, and I, I need to listen to this advice myself but I would say um, try as many different things as possible and get as many skills as possible. Mm-hmm. So I mean the way things are going now I mean the younger people that I know who are in their 20s they have these kind of what do you call them mosaic careers I don't mm-hmm. know where they're doing like two or three different things all at once and they're being really creative. Mm-hmm. The brilliant thing about the way that we live now and the internet is responsible for so much good as well as harm. But, you know, the fact that, you know, you can go onto social media, the fact you can create your own website, you can contact people who you normally wouldn't have been able to contact really easily just by following them on Instagram or on Twitter or, or Facebook or what have you, which gives you a lot more freedom and it allows you to amplify your voice. Mm. So if you are a young person, for example, who wants to I know, get into journalism or do writing or what have you, you've got really easy platforms to show a really, really wide audience what you can do, which wasn't there, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I would say um, get as much experience in as many different areas as you possibly can and just try your hand at it and don't restrict yourself to one particular thing. You know, I know people who've changed their careers in midlife who've admitted, oh, actually, yeah, I was a lawyer, but actually I thought, no, I fancy doing journalism. So they, they left after like 20 years and retrained or what have you. So there's always, you know, there are options, you know, and you're lucky because you, you can look at having a career which involves lots of um, different disciplines brilliant brilliant i'm going to end that here but thank you so much Anne. it's been an absolute delight to talk to you oh thank you so much for having me i've really enjoyed it thanks so much for listening if you like this conversation do subscribe to the art of work on apple spotify or any of the main podcast directories and do share rate it and leave a review 
For tips, wisdom and advice about the art of work, do follow at the art of work on Twitter or at theartofwork.co on Instagram, which is also the name of the website. And do join me next week.